Hello, and welcome back to Reclaiming Our Canon. I am Dr. Anika Prather. I'm so excited to have you with me as we talk about our canon. This is our shared heritage. This whole podcast is about two parts. Number one, it's about the Black connection to the canon. I'm showing you through different stories, different narratives. There may be sometimes guests on here talking about it, um, about how Black people have connected to the canon. But I also hope to highlight other ethnic groups, other human stories about how people have connected to the canon. And those areas where I may not be the expert in, I will invite guests to join me in this podcast. I'm so excited about this podcast because it allows me to really take my time to unpack the things that God is revealing to me about the Black classical tradition and the overall shared heritage of all of us around the Western canon. Last time we got together, I talked to you about the struggle I had with finding a connection with the Western canon. And I left you kind of on a cliff, a cliffhanger, wondering how did Du Bois help me get my thoughts on the right path with this? Well, today I hope to unpack a little bit more of that for you. So I ended by talking about how Du Bois talked about reading the Western canon somehow unveils our equality as a people here. Seeing ourselves as equal in a country that has enslaved and oppressed us was key. For too long, Black people have sought the white man to place their stamp of equality on us, but it is important for us to see it within ourselves. The knowledge that Du Bois sees us gaining through reading the text is not just to say, hey, we are just as smart as you because, see, we can understand these texts too, which is what I have been thinking, and I really wrestled with going through that process of doing something to prove myself to someone. Now, that's really important for you to understand about me. I also like to use this podcast for you to get to know me. I am not a competitive person. And people sometimes are shocked by that. I'm a very driven person. I work very hard. But if you look really closely at what I'm doing, I'm not doing it because someone else is doing it or to compete with someone else who's doing it. I'm usually doing it because it's something I've found passion in. Something has been revealed to me about that thing and I just go whole hog with it. And I am in my world. I love being in my world. So the whole notion of teaching Black kids literature to help them compete with white people also did not appeal to me because my thinking is there's a saying my mom told me as a child, which freed me on so many levels. Anika, you got to act like there's nobody in this world but you and Jesus. And that is what I've lived by. Whatever I do, I live for an audience of one. If he's calling me to it, if he's revealing some things to me about it, I want to be in it. And that's usually what drives me. And so I teach that way. I teach from that place of passion and understanding. And so I was not interested in teaching my students to compete with white people or to be just as smart as white people. Okay. So that was not of interest to me. But in these texts, Du Bois found a world where all men were equal with common experiences to be shared. 
He saw our common humanity written out in these texts. These experiences are what connects us. It solidifies our common humanness. These texts tell the human story, not just the white story. In the essay, The Training of Black Men that I discovered, as I shared with you in the last episode, Du Bois writes what I like to call an opus to his belief in the power of these books when he says the following. I almost have this by heart. I sit with Shakespeare and he winces not. Across the color line, I move arm in arm with Balzac and Dumas where smiling men and welcoming women glide in gilded halls. I summon Aristotle and Aurelius and what soul I will, and they come all graciously with no scorn nor condescension. So wed with truth, I dwell above the veil. Is this the life you grudge us, O nightly America? Is this the life you long to change into the dull red hideousness of Georgia? Are you so afraid, lest peering from this high pisca between Philistine and Amalekite, we sight the promised land? Du Bois was living in a world where he recognized that the, the truth of his equality and the equality of his people was constantly being questioned. But when he read these texts, he was transferred to a world where that did not come into question. There was no veil. There was no color line. And so when he goes into that space, that magical world of classics and, and reading those works of the canon, he discovers that we are all the same. We are all human. I love how he uses the metaphor of dancing in this passage. He is dancing with the authors, engaging with them, connecting to them, and he feels nothing but equality and acceptance. At this moment, I realized that I had been reading the text as if my current experiences with racism and white supremacy were behind these books. But these authors did not know or experience what America had been like for the Black person. They weren't intentionally written to support what my or my ancestors' experiences were. They were just narratives, explanations, revelations of inner thoughts and understandings. They were coming from a completely different place. This is why Du Bois felt free there. This is not to say some form of prejudice and or racism didn't exist back then. I don't know if I'm using the right words. I don't believe racism actually existed, not in the way we understand it to be, but just not in the same way. It wasn't the same as what I was experiencing here in America. These authors were not writing to promote a racist worldview. I sincerely believe they were innocent in that regard. They were simply writing the human story. And if I could free myself of the chains racism had wrapped around my mind, then I could see that. Reading this passage gave me completely new eyes. It also revealed that something else. When I saw that Du Bois was writing this opus, 
almost as if he was trying to convince the black community, hey, guys, you've got to read this stuff. It made me wonder who else was agreeing with him. He opened a doorway for me, a portal, if you will, to that place that we are now calling the Black classical tradition. It's always been there. It is pervasive in Black history. I know for a fact that my community has missed that world. From that point on, I began to use Du Bois's text as an icebreaker for my classes and in the teacher trainings I was now doing in the school. I was on fire. I had left my little corner of performing arts and I was being sucked deeper and deeper into the world of classical education. Finding Du Bois, however, was just a spark of the oncoming flame. From Du Bois, I found a host of Black authors who found connection in great books literature. In fact, I discovered an entire world of understanding how the early education of Black people after emancipation and even during slavery involved classical teaching and learning. I would even venture to say that most Black people were educated in this way. At first, classical education provided to the newly freed people was common. We see this in the story of Anna Julia Cooper, Nanny Helen Burroughs, Martin Luther King. We even see it in Frederick Douglass, who, although was self-taught, was quite proficient in studying the ancient texts favoring the works of Cicero. We're going to talk a little bit about Frederick Douglass and Cicero when we get back after the Selah moments. I'm going to allow you to listen to some more original jazz from yours truly. And when we get back, we're going to talk about Cicero and Frederick Douglass and what Frederick Douglass was learning from him. And my discovering that, what that did for me even more on this journey to finding my calling and purpose in the study of classics and the Western canon. So sit back, relax, reflect, think about it, take some deep breaths, and I'll see you when we get back. Keep 
I hope you enjoyed that little bit of a jazz break, thinking about what I've been sharing with you this point in the journey. Now here we are discovering you're coming with me. You are right on this trip back down memory lane, right? And we are discovering my process, how I came to love classics in the way that I do. We left off talking about Frederick Douglass and Cicero. When Frederick Douglass discovered the Colombian orator as just a 12-year-old boy, this text is a collection of ancient texts that were used oftentimes in the early years of America. And in it, though, he became very connected with the writings and speeches of Cicero. And the reason why Frederick Douglass was drawn so much to Cicero is he saw in him this rhetoric that he could practice. So he would read Cicero, practice speaking it and studying it. And he actually trained himself in rhetoric. Why? Why would Frederick Douglass want to use Cicero to train himself in rhetoric? He did that. He wanted to convince people on why Black people should be set free. And he recognized that as just a teenage boy, that if he got free, he wanted to put rhetoric into practice in order to convince people with words, not violence, not weapons, not derogatory speech, not hate speech, but through simple reason, the power of reason. Frederick Douglass taught himself that as an enslaved teenage boy. And that's what he learned from Cicero. And and the lessons he learned from Cicero became so integral to his very being that when I went to go tour his house that is now a museum in D.C., in the front foyer was a bust of Cicero. That is how important Cicero was to Frederick Douglass. See, as I began to discover these things, as I began to discover how enslaved people were running to classics, were running to the Western canon as a way to find wisdom on how to get free, how to get the education they need to overcome this system that oppressed them. A fire was being lit in me. A passion was developing in me. I was finding the connection for myself. As Blacks began to progress intellectually under this type of education, the same kind of education that Frederick Douglass taught himself would continue after emancipation. The early schools for Black people were classically inspired schools. And so that type of education would now be formally taught to the newly freed people. White supremacist ideology felt it necessary, though, to take this type of education away from Black people as we began to thrive in it. It was water to our weary souls. Desegregation solidified this process with committed Black teachers, most having been taught classically, being replaced with white teachers and Black teachers mandated to not continue classically teaching Black students. Anna Julia Cooper, who was principal of the M Street School, was removed by the school board because of her unwillingness to stop teaching Latin and other classical studies to her Black students. 
Nanny Helen Barrow School required all of its students to take Latin and classical studies. And before long, the classical tradition was weaned out of that school and it actually closed back in the early 2000s. But it was not a classical school when it closed. As shared earlier, I'm a soul learner. I have to work from my passion. Once I am motivated from within, I become insatiable in my desire to learn all I can about a subject. Once I found this bridge between myself, my people, and classical education, I began to read any and everything, developing a personal log of the many texts written by Black authors that cited the works of the canon. I also began to continue my research into the history of classical education in the African-American community. With these discoveries, I felt ready to continue my graduate studies by obtaining a master's from St. John's College and ultimately a PhD from the University of Maryland in curriculum and instruction. I didn't go back to get a degree in classics, although, oh gosh, if I could turn back time, I would have gotten a BA in classics. I instead chose to do my research in a college of education, which wasn't necessarily something well-received. It was very much off of the blueprint a university has laid out for its teacher education programs. But I wanted this training on how to create curriculum, how to do teacher training, how to set up educational programs, but in the classical tradition. Because you see, once I realized how integral classical education was to the education of Black people as we came out of slavery, I felt it necessary to go back and pick up that mantle again. See, we don't realize that when Abraham Lincoln set up the Freedmen's Bureau, which was an agency in the U.S. government created to help Black people freed from slavery get acclimated to civilian life, Part of their job was to set up schools for these newly freed people. White people still would not allow Black people to attend their schools, okay? And so the Freedmen's Bureau went throughout the South, especially, setting up these schools. And all of these schools were classical schools. That's Fisk University, Howard University, Atlanta University, which is now, I think, Clark Atlanta. St. Augustine's College was one, okay? And so all of these were classically inspired. And the director of the Freedmen's Bureau was General Oliver Howard. He was not a perfect man, but he and Lincoln worked together to set up these schools with the classical tradition so that Black people could get educated in the Constitution, the great books, the canon, the Latin that is splattered all around our country on our dollar bill, you know, in our motto, e pluribus unum, you know, So all of this was to help Black people to gain the literacy that they didn't have because it was against the law for Black people to know how to read and write until emancipation. And so the best way to prepare them for this new life was to basically give them the same exact education that those who set up this country had. Some people look at that and say, well, that's assimilation. But my ancestors didn't see it as that. They saw it as, well, I need the language so that I can make the changes necessary in the system that at one time oppressed me. And so Abraham Lincoln had that vision of us coming into civilian life, and then he was assassinated. And when Andrew Johnson, not Jackson, when Andrew Johnson, who was his vice president, came into the presidency, one of the first things he did was to end the work of the Freedmen's Bureau and just to put a stop to that process that Abraham Lincoln and Oliver Howard were trying to set up. 
So when I think about this narrative, I think to myself, and we're still on Andrew Johnson's path. We need to get off this train wreck. We need to get off of this and go back to where Abraham Lincoln and Oliver Howard left off. We need to, we need to go back and pick up that mantle. So as I thought about this, I'm in my PhD program. I'm feeling unwelcome because of the research I had chosen to do. And I wrestled sometimes with saying, nobody wants to hear this. I feel unwelcome. I feel isolated. I feel alone. I feel crazy. Should I quit? I was serving as a grad assistant to a professor who noticed me really wrestling with my growing passion for the topic of the relevancy of classical education to the Black community. No matter how much I was reading about theater and education and all the other things that interested me in the performing arts, I was consistently drawn to Socrates or Frederick Douglass or Du Bois or Aristotle and their conversations with each other. Martin Heidegger says, to think is to confine yourself to a single thought that one day stands still like a star in the world's sky. This was my star and it would not let me go. This fascination with classical education and its connection to the history of Black people in America, especially classical literature, had become an all-consuming thought. As I shared what was happening to me with this professor, she suggested that I make this my dissertation topic. I was scared. I'd already had a glimpse at how it would be received in academia, with my own community, with the Black community, with the academic community, with white people, all around me, all I saw was rejection. I did not want to place myself in such a controversial space. The title alone, Great Books, was already so problematic, and I did not want to have to always feel as if I had to explain myself to people. But her final words are what made me change and focus on this thing. Anika. You have to follow your heart. (sighs) At that moment, I decided to change my whole research topic. I was no longer going to tiptoe around classical education in performing arts classes or using classics on the stage. Or I was trying to stick with the performing arts as kind of a way to say, well, I'm I'm really researching performing arts. and I'm going to sneak classics in. But it began to take over my very thought, just like the star that Heidegger talks about. At one point, a friend even suggested, Tika, don't do this. I think you're making a mistake. Drop the topic and just choose a topic that you know they'll like. And then you can come back after you get your degree and finish. But I told you, I'm a soul learner. I follow my heart. I follow my passions. Classics was clinging to my soul. In our next episode, we are going to end this story of how I came to fall in love with classics and the works of the canon. I hope you're following my journey well. I hope you're understanding everything I'm saying to you and it's making sense. And if it is, I'm so happy about that. We will finish my story in our next episode and I hope you will join me for that. Thank you so much for joining me on Reclaiming Our Canon. I'm Dr. Anika Prather, your host. I look forward to seeing you next time.